This is Heather Meckes, Director of Discipleship at CRC, and this is our podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this inspires you, encourages you, and allows you to see how God is moving in and around you. If you would like to check out more resources, go to coopersvillereform.com. Enjoy the message. Thank you. If you are able this morning, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Our scripture text this morning comes from the book of Revelation, and I believe that we have a different one up there on the slide, but the one we're going to be reading is from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 17. It can be found on page 992. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. This is the word of God. You may be seated. here and as has already been alluded if you are a guest no this is not normal right um, I thought about wearing white and maybe a helmet I just kind of thought I could blend into the background here um, I also as I we were I was thinking through handing out rocks to you all as you came in I did have the thought you know I don't want a child to pick that up and think it's candy and put it in their mouth I didn't realize Janet Caparis was also going to do that in jest. <laughs> and if you did have kids that snuck out, if you want to tell them later that those are moon rocks, I'll leave that to your conscience, all right? Um, but our name is our identity, right? It's how we're known. We meet someone. We meet uh, Bob or Janet or Frank or Sue, and we immediately think to ourselves, they seem like a Bob or a Frank or a Janet or a Sue, or, or we think they don't fit that name, right? Um, we, we, as parents, there's a lot of pressure when it comes to picking names. There's so many options. Um, I don't think we spent a lot of time thinking through all the implications of that. We, we give our child a name and they will carry it forward for the rest of their lives. And then if you start to dig into the meaning of names, there's an entire industry built on ads that run off of parents searching for their kids' names on the internet, all right? And by the way, if you find a name you don't like, just go to a different site, and they'll have the meaning in a different language, and it'll all work out, okay? And so I'm going to give some examples of some bad names, fully realizing this is kind of like playing Russian roulette, because there are bound to be some names that I share, and it's your name, or it's the name of someone that you love, or it's the, the name of a grandchild. And so bear with me. All right, I'll throw my own kids' names out there. Mackenzie, our oldest daughter, means attractive or child of a wise leader. And I promise we did not research the meaning, but I really like both of those a lot. My son, Carter. Carter means a transporter, 
transporter of goods by cart. Eh, kind of a miss. If you need help with firewood, if you have a cart, apparently he can help you out, though. Okay? And then our youngest, Alexis. Alexis means a defender or a protector. And so I did have to search through several sites to find meanings that I liked, uh, if I'm honest with you. All right? Uh, but some other meanings. Cecilia sounds pretty. It means blind or dim-witted. All right? Mallory is the unlucky one. Ella means clumsy. All right? Again, if I'm stepping on toes, just grace, grace. Um, any Gilmore Girl fans in here? Lorelei, great name. It means ambush cliff or a woman who leads a man to death. That's a, a blind date you'd want to think twice about, right? We'll move on to some guys. Caesar sounds really regal. It means hairy. Brody is muddy or dirty. Paul means small. And Cameron means has a crooked nose. That's actually a prophetic name. I have this really good friend from college. His name is Cameron. And I met him, and he didn't have a crooked nose. I played basketball with him. He was a couple of years older, and I remember it was an open gym in the spring. I caught the ball on the wing. I made a nice, hard sweep through with my elbow, and I caught him across the nose. I heard a pop, blood spouted, and his nose was pointed directly at his left ear. Bad enough, I felt this big. The next year, his younger brother comes to campus, also joining the basketball team. His mother, pastor's wife, comes up to me, puts her arm around me, and says, this is my pretty boy. Please leave his nose alone. All right? Sometimes we may name kids after family members as a tribute, or someone in history, or, or someone in culture. Christian parents may even name their kids after Bible characters. There's lots of great options to pick from, and then some that aren't quite so good. Some of them, Dorcas, bad name, in Acts. You know, it's a cultural change, but it sounds strange, but it actually means gazelle. Not so bad. Ichabod means God has abandoned us. Some are just weird. Genesis 10 talks about mash. I just, I, you could have fun with that. Like, hey, mash, could you take out the trash, right? Make his middle name potatoes or something. Um, lots of different options. So we, we've got mash, um, Nimrod, doesn't sound good. It isn't. It means dimly lit in the mind. We may also avoid certain names because of association. So my wife Heather was an elementary school teacher for the first five years that we were married. And I remember proposing names that I really thought would land and would be great. And they got vetoed because she had a child or several children with that name. And no, I'm not going to share what those names were. I've got to draw the line somewhere. Despite all our careful reflection and selection, though, our kids go off to school, and often they come home with a nickname, right? A shortened form of their name, and sometimes it becomes so ingrained uh, that we may not even remember someone's actual name. I have that. I have a friend whose wife has been Murph for as long as I know her. Her actual name is Michelle, and I got a professional email actually around a job and I'm like, I don't know this, Michelle. Like, who is this? It took me some time to realize uh, that it was someone that I knew. Or maybe you're like me and you have some names saved in your phone contact list. And it's not their actual name, but it's, it's how you know them. It's their association to you. So, so in my phone, I have Craig's drywall guy. It's not even my drywall guy. It's my brother-in-law's drywall guy. His name is Russell. I didn't know it. He's, for years, been 
Craig's drywall guy. Um, I also have James the scrapper. So occasionally I would have some, some metal to get picked up. I had a neighbor that did that for years, but because of some health complications, he doesn't do that anymore. But he's like, I got a guy. So he gives me the guy, James the scrapper. I call James, he comes and picks up some things, and I realize I actually know James the scrapper. Because James the scrapper is also James the bike guy and James the bass guitarist from the men's retreat that I've been going to through this church for years. But it's that idea that we, we associate people with their names. This morning, we're going to spend some time studying one of Jesus' disciples, who Jesus gave a new name, and spend some time taking a look at what does that mean for him, and then what can that mean for us. But before we jump in, would you join me in prayer? Father God, I thank you for our time together this morning. I pray that as we, we look at your word, that, that your heart would be communicated through my words. God, I pray that you would guide our time together. I pray that the, the little stories that we look at would point to the bigger story of the gospel. I ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So this morning, we're going to start in the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to look at an account of Jesus' early encounter with one of his disciples. It reads like this in Luke 5, starting in verse 1. One day, Jesus was standing by the lake of Gesineret. The people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. If you've been around lakes, you know there's these great acoustic properties that, that voices carry across the water. We have to teach our, our children about that so they don't ask questions about the neighbor too boldly, right? When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. And so here's Simon. He's a professional fisherman. It's what he does for a job day in and day out. He knows how to fish. He had just fished the entire night before because often they would fish at night, not just because of the temperature, but uh, it's thought that the kind of fish they were fishing for, it was similar to a tilapia, and they would light a lantern, and that would draw the fish in, and then they could encircle it in the nets and catch those fish. And so here's Jesus, not a professional fisherman, asking Peter to do something at the wrong time of day and in the wrong way. And yet Peter says, because you said so, I'll let down the nets, I'll try it, most likely, this is because he had respect for Jesus as a rabbi, as a teacher. It's almost like saying, okay, teacher, I don't think this is going to work, but you asked me to, and so I'll do it. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. So initially, Simon is obedient. 
He does it because the teacher told him to. And now we see this reaction that is more like awe or fear. Most likely in his mind, he had just gone from thinking that he was with a rabbi, with a teacher, to thinking he was with a prophet. Because a rabbi would speak about God, he would teach about God, but those, those prophets were viewed as being God's representative on earth. And so he understood in that moment that he was in the presence of something more holy than he had thought just a few moments ago. For he and all of his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, so there's this group, there's at least four disciples here, and yet Jesus's interaction is focused on this one disciple, on Simon. He says, don't be afraid, from now on, you will fish for people. So we see Peter here, he's, he's taking the lead, at least in this narrative, where he's the one that we're, we're having the, the recorded interaction with. It could be because he was a little bit older. We'll learn in a couple of short chapters that he was married already. Jesus heals his, his mother-in-law who is deathly ill. Um, so it's possible that he was the older brother or, or a little bit older. But we're also going to see that he just had a personality that was bold. He would often be the first to open his mouth and to speak. Maybe I wonder if he was not even an alpha personality that kind of person that when they're in the room, the attention was often focused on them. The book of John also includes an account of an early encounter between Jesus and Simon. Let's take a look at that briefly as well. So John 1, verse 35, the next day John was there again with two of his disciples. So this is uh, John the Baptist Okay, this is the person who was a prophet of God. He was preparing the way he was going to point people towards Jesus. When John says, when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. So here's these disciples that were following the prophet John the Baptist around, and John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says, it's not about me, it's about him. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and said, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? We had a message on this not that long ago, just kind of a strange question, right? It's kind of like, I wanna ask a, a deeper question, but I'm not quite sure how to do that. And so they go with something um, just kind of social to, to initiate that conversation, and yet Jesus invites them. He says, come, he replied, and you will see. I love that idea, come and see. Come and see comes before, follow me, right? Jesus' invitation is to come and see. Come and see what I'm about. Come and see what I do. Follow me for a while. Get an understanding of what I'm about. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon's Peter bro Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. It's that idea that found people find people. If you, if you encounter Jesus, you're excited about Jesus and you bring the people that you care about 
to Jesus. And so he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. So we have this man within a short period of time. If we look at these two gospel accounts, he has both a new occupation and a new name. His life was going in one direction and suddenly it changes. This naming is something that we see throughout both the, the Old Testament and the New Testament. When people would encounter Jesus in a new or a fresh way, there were, there were often times when Jesus would change their names. I think of Abram to Abraham or, or Sarai to Sarah in the Old Testament. I think of Saul to Paul, and then here we have Simon to Peter. And so Simon is a fisherman, probably in a multi-generational family business. It's comfortable, it's familiar, it's as stable as fishing can be because sometimes you strike out, right? But everything changed in Peter's life in a really short period of time. He's not the same person, and yet he is the same person. Jesus not only saw who Simon was, but who he was going to become, and so because of that, he gave him a new name. I put myself in the place of Peter. It must have been exciting, and terrifying and, and disorienting all at once. I tried to think about a time in my life and, and not to over-spiritualize this in any way, but I remember it was about four years after I had finished college. I'd spent eight years in college preparing for this healthcare career. About four years into that, I get a phone call one day after work and I remember where, where I went and where I sat and I'm having this conversation with a coworker that I had worked with on a very limited basis. She'd been teaching at the college level for a number of years and she said, hey Matt, I, I would like you to think about, I know you've done some teaching before. I said, yes, I have a little bit as an adjunct. I gotta be honest with you, it was just okay. And she said, this is different. And I said, okay, tell me more. And through the course of a conversation and then some discernment and, and talking with others, I came to this place of, of going from being a healthcare provider to, to leading a team in teaching and higher education, and it wasn't even on my radar. And yet one phone call, there was this rapid direction change. And if I'm honest, if I knew how much work it was going to be, I probably wouldn't have made that change. And so I think about that, and, and I think that Peter must have felt some of this same disorientation around this change. Let me ask you this. When is the last time you said yes to something that Jesus asked you to do that felt scary? Is there something right now that you need to say yes to? Maybe it's something that keeps coming up. It's a repetitive thought or an opportunity that just seems to keep coming your way. Or maybe an individual comes up to you and shares an observation. And it may even be presented casually. And yet, it affirms something that you've been thinking about over the last couple of weeks, the last couple of months. Maybe it's more than one individual. Maybe it's a dream. Maybe it's lots of these different characteristics. I firmly believe that God repeats himself when he needs to. I don't believe that the God of the universe, that his plans for your life, for my life, are going to be thwarted because I take a left at the stoplight instead of a right and I miss the billboard. And we need to be careful. We can deceive ourselves. Confirmation bias is real. 
If I convince myself that all the intelligent people I know drive GM products, pretty soon I'll notice intelligent people driving GM products everywhere and miss everyone else, right? And sometimes I like to say yes to God, but on my own terms. How about you? Yes, Jesus, I'll fish for you. And then if I was Peter, I'd be tempted to, to slap a Jesus fish bumper sticker on the back of my fishing rig. I'd probably rename it something quippy, you know, sunrise service, something like that. If it was an especially profitable year, maybe I'd even get a vanity plate that says fishing for JC on the back. And then I would have sought to go on and become a successful, comfortable, middle-class commercial fisherman. I'd tithe regularly. I'd only tell factually accurate fishing stories, right? I might even take the neighbor out with me on the weekends once in a while and share Jesus with him if the opportunity ever came up. And then in retirement, I'd have more time to devote to Jesus. If that feels a little uncomfortable, I want to be clear. I am not teaching on something I have figured out. I'm preaching about something I'm trying to figure out. I don't know what my life is supposed to look like, let alone your life but I do know that our life after Jesus is supposed to look different than our life before Jesus and probably different than we have planned. I would suggest that if our life always looks like we want it to look like, we might not be hearing Jesus clearly. Jesus didn't call Peter the rock because he was going to be perfect and always get it right. He wasn't going to be this infallible model or example of a follower. He had gifts and abilities, but they were underdeveloped. They were unrefined. He had this new heart, but he also had old habits, and they didn't change overnight. If we skip ahead in the gospel stories, we see some of Peter's successes and some of his failures. He was quick to speak, and he was impulsive. I think of the example of of Peter attempting to walk on water. Here's Jesus walking towards the disciples in the boat, and Peter quickly jumps out and says, me too, let me try. And he starts walking towards Jesus. Now to be clear, confidence doesn't always equate to competence, okay? Um, This reminds me, last time I was up here, I shared, I don't have a fear of public speaking, but I do have a fear of public singing. And there's a good reason for that. My father was a camp counselor at Camp Geneva. Many of us are very familiar with Camp Geneva. And then for years as he became a teacher, he would go back and he would lead an athlete's week. And our family for years would go for a Labor Day weekend family conference. And at this family conference, the youth would often lead one of the worship services. Something similar to what we do with Youth Sunday here. I remember the college age camp counselors planning this and asking for volunteers to sing a solo. I looked around and no one else raised their hand and so I said, I'll do it, 11 years old. I never got the lyrics, but that didn't bother me. It didn't seem important until the night of the performance when the spotlight shifted towards me and I was handed a microphone and I didn't know the words. This was long before screens, and so it was a very long minute and a half of me trying to catch the words being mouthed from the front row. People were gracious, except for my older brother. He wasn't quite sure he was going to ever live down the shame I had brought upon our family's name. Peter made bold mistakes. 
I'm not encouraging recklessness, carelessness, foolishness, even a lack of preparation. But I think there's something about how Peter was willing to get out of the boat that Jesus loved. Something that, that he knew that Peter would need later in his life. Something that God was planning to use as he built his church in the early books of Acts. And Peter's attempt to walk on water started off well. If you know the story, he did walk on water until he took his eyes off of Jesus and looked at his circumstances. But I don't think his doubt was in his own, was in Jesus's ability. I think it was in his own ability. Here's a man who was a fisherman. He'd been around water his entire life. He knew the physics. They weren't in his favor. And so he started to doubt his own ability. Maybe he even thought about his past experiences and the things that he had tried to do before. Can you relate? Maybe you think, who am I to lead a small group? Talk to someone about Jesus. Teach the word of God. I'm not trained for that. Someone else is more gifted. They'll do it better. I'm just gonna sit back and watch. See how it turns out. Maybe afterwards I'll offer a little bit of critique. I would have done this instead. Why did they do that? Peter got out of the boat. He didn't do it perfectly, but there were a bunch of other guys still sitting on seats watching. In his early calling, we saw Peter move from seeing Jesus as a rabbi to seeing Jesus as a teacher. And then we get this section in scripture in Matthew 16, where it feels like Peter is going to turn a corner. He's going to start to see something about Jesus and he's going to call out something that I don't think he fully understood yet. So in Matthew 16, starting in verse 13, we hear Jesus talking to his disciples. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, not Peter, the group, who do people say the son of man is? So referring to himself, what's the word? Who do they think I am? What are the things that you're hearing? What are the rumors about me? They replied, we don't know. Someone in the group, maybe they're throwing them out. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. It really could read or one of the other prophets. So the group of disciples was at this place. Jesus, you're a, you're a prophet. We believe you represent God here on earth. But what about you, he said, who do you say I am? Okay, I don't care who the people around you say I am. You've been spending time with me. You've been watching me. You've been walking with me. Who am I to you? It's almost like a knowledge check. Often as a teacher, I'll check in with my students. I'll ask a question just to gauge where are they at in their understanding? Are they getting it or do I need to keep going? Similar to that here. And here we see Simon again being the one to be a voice for the group, being willing to float an idea boldly. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. I think it's a moment where maybe Simon says more than what he really knows. Here's what I mean by that. Have you ever spoken something and then paused and thought, where did that come from? Or maybe you said something, and then weeks or months or even years later, someone comes up to you and says, hey, do you remember when you said that thing? That really struck me. 
or that really impacted me, or that was really a meaningful turning point in your life. And you think to yourself, that doesn't even sound like something that I would say. I had that experience when I was a college student. I had a chance to go on a couple of different short-term mission trips to Asia. And the same individual, a pastor who would become a really significant mentor in my life, Steve Weber, led both of those trips. And I remember we were sitting around one evening, as, as you often do on short-term trips, and you were talking through and processing the events of the day. And a bunch of these young 20-year-old college students who are really excited are talking in this mountaintop moment about how this thing is going to change my life. I'll never be the same. And Steve said, nothing about this mission trip and what happens in this week can change your life. It's the choices you make in the weeks and the months after you get back home that can. He was further along. He, was, he knew that those mountaintop moments don't last. We speak them with great intentions, but it's the consistency. It's the day-to-day -day things. About 15 years later, I had a chance talking with Steve. I said, hey, do you remember when you said this? And of course he didn't. It had been 15 years, right? It wasn't on the tip of his thoughts. It also wasn't a part of his normal trip language. It wasn't something he said to every group that he led. It was something that came to him in the moment that he responded to. And so God uses us through the power of the Holy Spirit to speak truth to people around us. That's why our words are so important. There are lots of cautions throughout the Bible about what we speak, but there are also imperatives that we do speak and challenge and encourage others, point them towards the gospel. I don't know about you, but I often hold back. I'm concerned, what if it's the wrong time? What if I say it the wrong way? What if they think I'm weird? But the Holy Spirit continues to, to speak when I feel like I'm being led to speak, even if it doesn't make sense to me. The scripture continues and Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Some translations call him son of Jonah, some son of John. They're very similar uh, in their meaning. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. In other words, he's saying this thing that you just said, you didn't learn that in books. You didn't learn that from your earthly father. You learned that from your heavenly father. Those words that just came out of your mouth are absolutely true, but they're not your own. And then he says, I tell you that you, Peter, you are Peter. It's your new name. You are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades or hell will not overcome it. A lot of the commentators suggest there are different words that are used here in the language and that it's an intentional thing and that it's a play on words with significant spiritual implications. The scripture says, Peter, you are Petros. Petros, Peter's the rock. But here, Petros means a small stone. Okay? And he says, uh, Peter, you're a small stone and on this bedrock of Jesus as the Messiah, that's the large foundational boulder. So you are the rock I'm gonna build my church on, but really you're just a pebble that sits on top of the bedrock. Okay. I think if I was Peter, I would feel relief. It's not about me. I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to be the one to get it right. It's not about me. Just like the, the, uh, John the Baptist earlier says, hey, 
I'm here speaking about Jesus. There he is, go and follow him. Same thing, Peter, I'm gonna build my church. I'm gonna use you powerfully, but it's not about you. It's about me, it's about Jesus. And this feels like a turning point, like, like Peter is getting it, right? Like this impulsive person that jumps in and opens his mouth too early uh, at times is moving forward. There's a part of me, I don't know if there's any WWE wrestling fans in here, but every, every part of me wants to, to do a Dwayne The Rock Johnson quote and say, if you smell what The Rock is cooking, right? And so I won't though, I promised my daughter, so I just spoke it, I didn't do the full on impression. So if you see her, make sure you let her know, all right? And then in Matthew 26, we see that Peter isn't done making mistakes. A short time later, he would tell Jesus, as he's washing his disciples' feet going into the Last Supper, he says, you're not washing my feet, okay? No, Jesus, I'm not letting you do that. And he's rebuked. And then a short time after that in Matthew 26, Jesus predicts that before the night is out, before the rooster crows, Peter's going to deny him three times. And Peter boldly and insistently says, no, I'm not gonna do it. He says, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And then here's Peter leading the way and others following. All the other disciples said the same. Yep, we're with Peter. We see it just like him. He's our spokesperson. He speaks it, we'll follow. A short time later, he would lash out impulsively again and cut off the ear of someone that had come in the group to arrest Jesus. And then before the chapter's out, he does in fact, if you know the story, he does in fact deny Jesus, not to the high priests, but just to some people in the courtyard, to some people in the crowd. He was fearful in the moment, and he didn't wanna be associated with Jesus. And then as soon as that rooster crows, those words come to his mind. It's a flashback to the words that Jesus had spoken just a few hours earlier. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. In the next several chapters, Jesus is tried and crucified, buried, and then raised back to life. And then we, we get these accounts that happen as he starts to appear to his disciples after his resurrection. There's three of them that are recorded. In the first one, we don't know exactly who is in the room, but Jesus comes through a locked door. He appears to his disciples alive and whole. We do know that Thomas wasn't there because in the second account, after we hear Thomas say, unless I can see it for myself, I won't believe it. I'm not taking an eyewitness account, not even from people I've been with. I need to see it myself. Eight days later, Jesus shows up and allows him to do exactly that. And then there's this third encounter that we can read about in John 21. And much of this again focuses on Peter. It says, afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter said. We'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Back to fishing. It's a full circle moment, right? This is where Jesus found Peter initially. 
He's at this place. He's going back to doing what he was doing before. Again, I don't think he doubted Jesus. I think he doubted himself. I think he felt disqualified. Jesus mentored me. He poured into me. I promised I was all in. And yet when it came to it in the moment, I was a coward. I didn't have the courage to keep my word. And so I think in this moment, he thought he had no option other than to go back to doing what he knew. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was him. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? I wonder if there's a twinkle, a little fun snark in that. Right? Sometimes it's fun to kind of pester your friends as you got a boat full of fish and you know they have none. I don't know. No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, happened to be the author, writing of himself, uh, said to Peter, it's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about 100 yards. So in this moment, Peter recognizes that it's Jesus, and he can't even wait for the boat to come in. Have you ever made a big mistake? One that you were ashamed of or, or embarrassed by? I remember a big mistake that I made at the end of high school. It became public and then resulted in having conversations with some of the high school administrators, including my best friend's dad, who happened to be the principal, the athletic director, eventually my boss, the youth pastor at my grandparents' church. They were all extremely difficult and embarrassing conversations. But the conversation I dreaded most was with my parents. I wanted to hide and to avoid. At the time, the mistake I had made felt unforgivable. And there were consequences, but there was also grace. I see that here in Peter. Peter had made a big mistake, but he saw Jesus, and his impulse was to rush towards him. He couldn't wait for the boat. 100 yards, I don't know, can you swim faster than a boat can go? Uh, but he just knew that he had to get back to Jesus. Verse 14 says it's the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples. We don't know for sure, but, but I assume that Peter was in the room the first two times as well. So what was different about this? What happened in this encounter where, where he was able to say, I'm going to run towards Jesus instead of I'm going to avoid Jesus and go back to fishing? I wonder if just like the rooster crow brought those words back to mind, the similarities of these uh, experiences that, that he was having, that he had had during that early encounter with Jesus by the lake. I wonder if the similarity of circumstances brought to mind the fact that Jesus was not just a prophet, but he was the Messiah, and that there was grace in running to Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew ends with what we know as the Great Commission. It's Jesus speaking to a group of his disciples, of his followers, saying, Go and do what I've been doing. Make disciples, teach them about me, baptize 
them. In many ways, this scripture we just read at the end of John is an individual recommissioning of Peter. To paraphrase, it's essentially Jesus telling Peter, I found you the first time and you were fishing. Here you are again. It's as if Jesus is saying, now that you have come and seen, do you want your old life back? Or do you want the new life that I have for you? Peter, don't go back to being a fisher of fish. Go forward to being a fisher of men. You will never be content if you go back. You don't have to be perfect, Peter. I knew you weren't and aren't and won't be. Your mistakes don't define you, Peter. I define you. You're still the rock. You screwed up, but I am bigger than your mistakes. It's as if Jesus is telling him paradoxically, it's okay and do better. I love you just as you are, but I also love you too much to let you stay there. Peter, I have a purpose for your life. When you speak, others agree. When you say, let's follow him, other disciples did. When you said, I'll never betray you, others were encouraged to proclaim the same. And when you say you're going fishing, others say me too. You're a leader, Peter. You're going to lead people. I want to use it, all of it. Your weaknesses, your failures, your mistakes to show my power. Peter, don't live a life of self-impersonation. Live the life you were created for. So tonight, I wanna end where we started. Heather read scripture from Revelations. For years, I avoided Revelations. It was confusing. It was often misinterpreted. I just didn't wanna have a lot to do with it. I've kinda gotten over that. I kinda still feel the same. But the scripture that Heather read at the time that the book of Revelation was written by John in Rome, if you, were con- if you were accused of a crime, you were considered guilty until proven innocent. And often you were branded a prisoner so that in case you escaped, you could be easily identified. And then after the, the court case was presented, those in the jury would vote. They would place one of two rocks They would place a white rock to indicate innocence or a black rock to indicate guilt. And then those votes would be tallied. And if you were found innocent, you were set free, but you still carried the brand of prisoner. So the judge would release you with a gift. And the gift was a white stone. And the white stone would have the mark of the judge on it. So that when you were out, and someone saw the brand prisoner. All you had to do, you didn't have to retry the case. You just had to present the white stone with the mark of the judge. And if they had questions about it, they could go to the judge and the judge would serve as your advocate to say, yes, he is innocent. It's true what he says. So with that in mind, listen again to the verses in Revelation. Whoever has ears, Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of that hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. When Christ promises this white stone to believers, he wasn't just announcing forgiveness and acquittal from a past 
sinful life. He was also telling them, my vote is for you and it's the only one that matters. I'm your advocate. I proclaim your innocence and I give you a new name like Abraham and Sarah, Paul and Peter. When God, we encounter God, our identity changes and we carry his identity instead. As we conclude today, I'm gonna ask you to hold these two stones that you got as you came in today. Hold one in each hand and close your eyes as we pray together. For many of us, it's more difficult for us to believe that we can be found innocent than that we're guilty. We often say things like, his grace is sufficient for me, but, but I confess that, that I, and maybe you sometimes, really, we act like functional atheists, don't we? By that I mean, we say his grace is sufficient, but we hang on to that black rock, we hang on to that guilt. And if I'm honest, it's as if I'm saying, yes, Jesus, but you don't know my past, you don't know my thoughts, you don't know my mistake. So Father, this morning, we just gather, and I am grateful that there are only two stones. There's a black and a white. There is no gray stone. We are either guilty or innocent. God, I thank you for the example of Peter, who in his brokenness, this bold man who made bold mistakes, got to a place of realizing that his abilities weren't what mattered. It was his identity in you that mattered. And as he came to terms with that, God, he moved towards you. He embraced the grace that, that you had been teaching him about because suddenly it was real in his own life. God, as we, as we sing this song and as we, we conclude today, I pray that you would help us to continue to think about are there things that we are holding on to that are keeping us from embracing and truly believing our new identity? I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. It's in the precious name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thank you, Matt. Well done. What better hymn to sing right now than the solid rock? Let's sing.